Welcome back to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 9 and we're swinging back to the Karelian Isthmus to focus on what was going on through the third week of January 1940. Early in the month, a disgraced Soviet Leningrad military district was reformed and renamed the Northwestern Front and Stalin installed Semyon Konstantinovich Timoshenko as the commander. He was a hard man, flinty eyes, shaven head, powerful voice. A tough man for a tough job. Timoshenko was also an ideologue, but no fool, and agreed to lead the Northwestern Front assaults, but only if Stalin agreed that he would not be held personally liable for the coming butcher's bull. Cracking the Mannerheim line along the Isthmus was going to be challenging after more than a month of battles had shown the Finns to be more than a match for the Red Army. Timoshenko's chief of staff, was the architect of the Russian victory over the Japanese in Mongolia, Georgi Zhukov. The Leningrad commander Zhdanov was demoted to political commissar of the campaign without any operational power at all. He had been roundly defeated by the Finns since the start of the Winter War in November 1939, and now his message to the troops on the front line was to change. Previously, Russian propaganda had centered around the narrative that the Finnish working class needed saving... Now Zhidanov was going to focus on Russian patriotism and pride instead of the drumbeat of party slogans. The country had been shamed in the eyes of the world and needed to redeem itself, and the Northwestern Front fighters were going to be at the forefront of this reformed war. When the Red Army returned to the Mannerheim line in early February, the men were going to be shouting, For the glory of the fatherland, not for the glory of Stalin. The dim-witted approach to the early phase of the war was going to be replaced by high energy, and the refurbished Red Army was a much more dangerous foe. Just to keep morale high, the Supreme Soviet in Moscow decided to award medals to the veterans of the first phase of this war, 2,600 in all. But what to do about the Finns' brilliant tactics and strategy? That was a more difficult question, and one that the Russians knew they had to circumvent with a new strategy of their own. In the first few weeks of this war, the Russians had failed miserably in coordinating anything. Their artillery, although massive in power, had been almost useless. Infantry commanders in the field couldn't call on their big guns for direct supporting fire, and there was no attempt at creeping barrages ahead of assaulting infantry. Usually, the artillery just blanket bombarded a coordinate on a map, while the much-vaunted Soviet armor charged at the Finns, often breaking through, then they milled about like herds of oxen waiting for someone to tell them what to do. The Finns had bred an army of innovation and invention as well as initiative. Stalin's purge of top-ranking officers had taken out about two-thirds of his most highly skilled and professional leaders, replacing these with cadres who were often yes-men who lacked the basic military nous. Tomashenko and Zhidanov changed this as quickly as they could, reorganizing the Northwestern Front units from top down. Once done, they started focusing on the training, and the troops altered their tactical doctrine and began to prepare the men who would bear the brunt of the coming assaults. All Red Army forces on the Northwestern Front were totally reorganized. The Karelian Isthmus force was divided into two corps. General Grendal was placed in charge of the 13th Army, which was to assault the right wing of the Isthmus closest to Lake Ladoga. There were three divisions fighting near Taipali, which were going to receive reinforcements. The second corps was the 7th Army under General Meretskov, which was a stronger force, and its job was to overcome the Mannerheim line on the southern section of the Isthmus. Most of his army was arranged along a relatively small 16-kilometer area through the Summa and Ladi Road, then up against the Munasua Swamp. 
The Russians were determined to break through here, and Meretskov pulled together nine infantry divisions, five tank brigades, a machine gun division, and a vast array of guns, at least 80 per kilometre. While the massive firepower was designed to blast through the Finns' lines, the Russian tactics actually spoke of gnawing rather than anything more optimistic. Nibbling at parts of the Mannerheim line was more realistic since the first days of the Winter War, now that the Russians were fully appraised of just how well the Finns could fight. The new tactical approach was to use the Russian forces as a wedge instead of massed ranks of men hammering away across a wide sector, dying in waves. The commanders believed that the Finns were so stretched that a rupture at any point would force them to abandon their sector. Before the next attack, it was crucial for the Russians to retrain their men. The Soviet 123rd Division would be the tip of this wedge, and they received rigorous training while the Red Army reconnaissance spied on the Finns' lines. Eventually, Tomashenko had enough information to plan specific operations. These recon teams went so far as to bring back bits of concrete from the Finns' defences, particularly around Suma. The Russians had decided to do things in detail and built a full-size mock-up of the Suma line. Then the 123rd conducted three live-fire training sessions, storming the mock-up. And for once, the artillery and armour joined in. The coordination began to improve. Timoshenko didn't stop there. He ordered the support units to undergo tough realistic training to prepare them as well. This Russian general had started his military career in 1915, and by 1925 had been made a commander of all the cavalry corps. He had survived Stalin's purges and would go on to lead the army until the German invasion of Russia in 1941 when Stalin himself took over command of the army. Timoshenko's new template for war was monstrous and effective. In frontal attack, no enemy or combination of enemies can hope to compare with us, he is quoted by William Chu, a student of the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School based in Monterey, California. By making a succession of direct attacks, we shall compel him to lose blood. In other words, to lose something he has less of than we have. It's remarkable, isn't it, that a commander of troops is happy to go on record speaking of butchering his own side, but hoping that by doing so, the tide of blood would sweep away the enemy. From what we see happening in Ukraine, the same sentiment is driving Russian commanders today. Even if we lose more men than the enemy, continued Tymoshenko, we must view it dispassionately. Unless, of course, you're a family member of the said loss. It's only in a nation ruled by a monarchy or despot that sentiments of this sort can be idly shared as though the speaker is referring to an animal. But he was right about the Finns. They were worn out, particularly on the Karelian Isthmus. Soviet artillery bombarded them constantly now, a never-ending succession of shells that shook their bunkers and trenches. The men had to remain alert just in case the Red Army attacked, so those on the front lines could not rest. At night, the Finns would have to repair damage and keep a lookout for possible recon coming their way. The Finnish commander there, Lieutenant General Hugo Ostermann, had grouped his army into two formations. In the western edge, around Vipuri, was 2nd Army Corps led by Lieutenant General Harald Orquist. There were five divisions here. The first under Major General Taveti Laitikainen, the second under Colonel Aino Koskimis, the third under Colonel Pavo Paulu, and the fourth under Colonel Arno Kaila. The fifth under Colonel Isaacson was held back behind the lines as a strategic reserve just south of Vipuri. On the eastern edge, around Taipali, 3rd Army Corps was being led by Major General Heinrichs. Mannerheim renamed the 10th Division here as the 7th, partly to confuse the Russians, 
and Colonel Einar Wiemer was in charge there. Adjacent was the 8th Division, commanded by Colonel Bertel Winner, that was centered around Kivinyemi. Close to the 8th was Colonel Nilo Rosalo's 21st Division, made up mainly of reservists. Mannerheim was having some difficulty with reinforcements, because they basically weren't any. He was pinning his hopes on this one line named after him. The secondary defense to the north, behind the Mannerheim line, was what was called the Interim Line, and this was poorly prepared. It had emplacements, but few other facilities. Behind this was a third line called the Rear or T Line, that extended from Vipuri to Kupasari, then onwards northeasterly to Taipali. Here, at the all-important isthmus, the Finns had a paltry eight divisions facing off against the 30 of the Red Army. On the 21st of January, 2nd Army Corps Commander Lieutenant John Ochwist noted in his daily log that heavy bombardments and probing attacks had taken place on the 3rd Division overnight. Russian infantry that now assaults in small groups are well trained and valiant, he wrote. Similar attacks were taking place across the Taipali sector. On the 23rd, Russians seized Susari Island on the lake called Mulanjavi, and heavy fighting continued there for some time. The bombardments were building exactly as Timoshenko had planned, and the Finns were preparing for what was going to be a massive attack. While things were looking ominous, there was quite a lot for the Finns to savour. One of these was the extraordinary Simoheya, the White Death, as he became known. He was a sniper, some say the most lethal sniper to have ever lived. He served with the 6th Company, 34th Infantry Regiment, and was based at the Kola Front. The second youngest child of eight, he was born on the 17th December 1905 in the village of Kiskis in Kela, and still a child, he was helping to run the family farm. His main hobbies were skiing and shooting, and he became an expert hunter. When he turned 17, he joined the Civil Guard and quickly gained a reputation as a gifted marksman. His favourite competition was hitting a tiny target at 150 metres six times in one minute. By 1927, he was undergoing advanced sniper training, and when the Winter War began, he found himself on the Kolai front shooting Russians. He didn't count his kills, but his colleagues did. In three days in December, for example, he killed 51 Red Army soldiers. His superiors refused to believe the reports, but his relentless kill rate continued and was now being watched much more closely by his senior officers. His commander, Lieutenant Colonel Taitinen, ordered an official observer to follow him around, a particularly dangerous mission, as snipers often found themselves exposed in the wilderness. Simohaya got to 200 kills, and it was then that the Finns began calling him the White Death. What is remarkable about Haya is that he used a simple rifle with open sights, no scope. Scopes reflect sunlight and steam up in the freezing weather of the winter. Open sights allowed him to lie much flatter as well, making him a much smaller target for enemy snipers. Jumping forward, he was taking aim in a high-knee shooting position on March the 6th, 1940, when his luck ran out after 100 days of sniping. An enemy sniper spotted him and shot him in the face with an explosive bullet. Banned in warfare, of course. The round entered the top of his lip, split open his left cheek. But after ten operations, he recovered. He wanted to return to the front but was prohibited and spent the rest of the war buying horses for the military. Hayes confirmed kills of 542 Russians in the space of a hundred days has never been eclipsed. He passed the rest of his life hunting and farming, and the White Death died in April 2002 at the age of 97.
His exploits made him world famous, and during the Winter War, stories of his jaw-dropping sniping achievements were passed around the villages of Finland. At a time of desperation, he was a symbol of Finnish focus, tenacity, courage. But what were the Russians up to? Finnish aerial photography indicated a build-up along the Karelian Isthmus. Had they eventually figured out how to fight in Finland? We'll find out next episode. Please head off to the website desmondlatham.blog for more details about this and my other shows. Until next, goodbye.